0: Engineering is a dangerous sport where a 20% chance of rain means you'd be better off planning a picnic. The hosts of this podcast will soon be replaced with Chat GPT, as they are more artificial than intelligent. This podcast will be nominated for the 2024 People's Choice Award in the fiction category as soon as we submit the paperwork. And now, the unqualified hosts... Of the Canyon Tech podcast, Wayne and Vin. Welcome back, everyone. This is Wayne. Vin, greet our fans.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I'm particularly interested.
0: Good, good. So we had a podcast a few months ago now called Water, Water Everywhere that showed what we were surprised about when we went up to the Seattle area in the Pacific Northwest and we did a lot of wet canyons. Some of the rigging is different. How they approach the canyons are different some of its geography, some of the fact is that you've got water there that's constantly trying to kill you. We were quite surprised by the differences, and we try to capture those. On this one, we're going to go the opposite direction. We also realized that in desert canyoneering, there's some anchor differences, there's some water considerations, and those types of things that we would like to make sure are clear to our friends who are used to wet canyons and an entirely different environment. We know there's a rendezvous coming up in Death Valley. And so maybe having a few words of wisdom as we talk about the differences, I guess the number one thing, Vin, is water versus no water. So if I'm in flowing canyons up in the Pacific Northwest, remind our listeners on some of the things that are very, very important and a little bit different than what we have to worry about in the desert.
1: One of the things that I saw when I was up there was how often you rig releasable, which makes a ton of sense when you're up there, right? You want to be able to rescue quickly. But the biggest one for me personally was the difference in communication. Using the whistle makes sense when you're in the water, but it's still much more limited than just being able to talk to your friend. And so the communication was, was a huge challenge that I, we had to figure out how to overcome. And then even like smaller things like the equipment that you use, like I have a knife available in the desert, but it's usually not right on my hip because we're a little bit less time sensitive. So in the desert, you should be releasable, but the problems aren't as urgent. You have more time to deal with it. And you can just hear each other. So you can do these like complex communications because you're just talking to each other as you're going down the rappel and trying to figure out what the team is doing and what everyone's job is. We do have water, but the water usually means that it's in a pothole. And so like you're talking about extra equipment, like hooks, atrias, or pot shut bags, which is kind of out of the scope of probably... What most of our friends would be doing when they come down here.
0: And so that's a whole nother set of topics, pothole escapes, there's trainings and YouTube videos and those types of things on different techniques for escaping potholes. We're not going to get in that today. And there's other differences in the wet versus dry canyons that we will get into mostly around anchors, rigging techniques, and maybe some rope management. I'm going to start with the very basic Maybe the most obvious, which is drinking water. So what I was surprised a bit when we were up in the Pacific Northwest, there's flowing canyons. Very nice water at your feet at all moments. So, you don't need to carry a ton of water. You just filter it whenever you need to. Some people in our groups actually even just carried one of those filter straws and they didn't even have a water bottle. But in the desert, of course, we have to worry about just the dry air. You could be sweating, you don't even know it. Just breathing in and out will dry you out, even in perfect temperatures. But if you get it above 90 degrees or 32 Celsius, the recommendation that we talked about on our last medical podcast episode is really about a liter of water per hour. That's a lot of water when it's warm out, but you're going to need a couple of liters for most canyons, and you're going to add some electrolytes to that. Always, again, bringing maybe a little extra in case you have some issues and you have an overnight... Talk to me, Vin, about the pack situation because it was a surprise to us about pack consolidation and the reasons for that.
1: It took me a while to understand, and it kind of made sense over time because we were zipping them down because having the packs was a hazard in the water. You know, increased risk of entrapment, increased risk of inversion, and also it was it was kind of easier. Like the, at least the ones that we did, they were shorter approaches, shorter repel. So you put on your wetsuit and you go off and you do it, and everyone's not holding as much weight. right so you're shedding weight consolidating into the packs but really a lot of that is because you're not holding as much water it makes sense there but in the desert the packs aren't causing a ton of issues on rappel like if you need to go down the rappel and there's a risk of inversion a lot of times you'll hang the pack underneath you but the real thing is that you need to have access to your own food and your own water because as we'll talk about later there is more sequencing so you've got to be able to drink the water when you're feeling thirsty and even waiting that time to find your people is not going to be to your advantage.
0: Yeah. And we have in the desert, a lot of approaches that you might have a three hour approach. It's a thousand to 2000 feet of elevation. We're talking about some serious time where you're going to be sweating and making sure that you're going to have to replenish those fluids. So you're carrying quite a bit. And also you're going to be carrying not only your own equipment, your harness, your helmet through that, you know, three hour approach, but then there's the group equipment, of course, the first aid kits, and the ropes, and et cetera. So everybody's going to want to pack to make sure that they're carrying their part of that overall team gear. Next thing that we noticed in the Pacific Northwest was they were careful to stay together much more. It's It wasn't clear to me whether it was because It was a rendezvous and people felt responsible, but I suspect it's also because if you go around a corner and there's a lot of water and somebody gets swept away, you're going to want to get a rope to them as soon as possible. So you can't just have people go wander down the water course, but we do it all the time, of course, in the desert because there's not a lot of danger relative to that. And matter of fact, there's a lot of upside to moving ahead. So you wanna keep moving because you're trying to limit your heat exposure, your dry air exposure. You're eventually gonna run out of water so you can't be out there forever. Maybe you're going to run out of daylight as well. One of the main techniques that we use is to sequence repels. We'll call it by sending people ahead, sending ropes ahead as much as possible. In the Pacific Northwest, they have anchor managers. Someone will come to the anchor, set it up a very specific way with a releasable. They'll manage if the rope has to go down or up a little bit along the way. If someone gets stuck, the anchor manager is the one to release them and to have that part of the rescue. And we don't really think that way. It's more of uh, we're going to do the setup. People generally will understand what we did in the setup and do a quick inspection of it. And then the person who set it up may go ahead and go first. We think at about a little more of who goes first and who goes last, because the first person doesn't have a belay, so they're going to go down and have to hopefully have a VT Prusik as a backup. And then the last person, we'll talk about some other special considerations depending on the anchor, but the last person usually is just making sure that there is a good pull. Being able to pay attention to that is going to be important in the whole process. The other thing about sending folks ahead, VIN, what can they be doing while others are finishing up on the previous rappel and packing rope?
1: Moving ahead makes a lot of sense because there's a certain number of things that have to happen every time you approach a station. At the very least, you're going to be wanting to inspect the webbing and how it was constructed. That's going to take a couple of minutes. You're also going to start thinking about what's the best way to rig this particular rappel, which way you want the pole to go, whether you need to do a specialty rigging. Also, it could also be gone, right? Like there's monsoons here in the desert that will just take out the whole cairn, And so you may be needing to spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes or more building a new anchor and farming material to be able to construct it.
0: And by farming material, you, I have been in Death Valley specifically, gotten to a rappel or people in the front of our group have, and there was not enough rocks there. So we were actually two rappels back still Now trying to bring rocks down Canyon in order to have enough to create a new and improved rock Cairn in Death Valley. There's no bolts. You're not going to find any. So we're talking about nothing but natural anchors. So that scouting is important. Let's talk about the different anchors that you are likely to find. These are all natural anchors of various kinds. What's some of the best ones that you like to see?
1: In a Death Valley situation, I'm going to feel really good when I walk up and it is just one gigantic boulder. Just throw some webbing around it with a repeat, and off you go. It's going to be super bomber. Or there's a couple of boulders that form a pinch point and either you can thread through it. There'll be different ways to approach how to tie it, but large boulders, absolutely the best.
0: Okay. And then the next one, you're going to see a lot of in the desert are rock cairns. There's a couple of different styles, but both of them require having a a nice rock, usually a little oblong, not perfectly rounded where the webbing may come off. You're gonna wrap that rock. And so the first type of cairn, which is very common, is you've got this uh, wrapped rock with a piece of webbing and you just pile a bunch of rocks on top of it, right? So the whole idea is you've got weight and friction of that wrapped rock on the ground. You're going to be going off of that pile Usually then in those cases, the bigger pile is the better. And if you're in doubt, just pull some more rocks and stack it even higher. The problem when you walk up on those kinds of anchors is your webbing is inside of all of this pile of rocks. And so ideally you would undo it, take a look at the webbing, put it all back together. The reality is most of us don't do that. So we're kind of poking around the edges, looking to make sure that the webbing where people have put rocks on top of it didn't cut or nick the webbing in order to reduce its strength. There's another style that we've seen call it a chalkstone style. Similarly, you'd wrap a a nice rock, run the webbing though under like a flat rock or some kind of channel. And that channel would be in the direction of the rappel. Then you'd create this pile of rocks around and over that channel but it's in front of the main chalk stone and i've seen it in kind of an arch shape so in theory you would distribute the weight and there's some physics there what's the main advantage of this type of chalk stone style cairn
1: the main advantage is that you can take that main piece out you can lift it turn it over and inspect the entire webbing without compromising the integrity of the anchor itself
0: and if it is a problem, I just rewrap with a new piece of webbing, pull it on through, and now I'm, I'm good to go again without touching that pile and worrying about it. And then essentially, again, the rock is just pulled against that whole pile instead of being buried underneath. Another type of anchor that we see on rare occasion, it's similar in concept, but it's a dead man. So Van, tell me a little bit about how a dead man is both similar and different than the Cairns we just talked about.
1: Yeah, I would say, too, that some of this, these anchors are separated temporally, right? Like, I think dead man's used to be more popular. And then as we got better and we start seeing the problems, we came up with better techniques. So I think of this as less common, but also one of the older techniques. And it was very simply, like, you take a good-sized rock, you wrap it, and then you bury it in dirt or sand. And it's actually even better if there is like occasional water because that kind of like cements it in. And you can see why it was super strong, especially if you add some rocks on top of it. The problem is now you've got a buried anchor with webbing like coming out of the ground and you have no idea what's going on under the ground. And you could inspect it by digging it up. But the very act of digging it up compromises how strong it is because that water and that settling of dirt was what was keeping it stronger in the first place.
0: And I have dug up dead men anchors to replace them. And it is amazing. You can have a modestly sized rock that has cemented in under that dirt, and it is very difficult to move. So, from a safety perspective, when it's correctly done and that water has cemented all the sand and dirt over it, it is super strong. But as you mentioned, it's difficult to inspect and so as the name indicates, not something you will see much these days. And if you do find one, it's probably a very old anchor and you should be suspicious of it and inspect it to the extent that you can. The next type you'll see a lot of in the desert is a knot chalk. We're going to talk about knot chalks and rock chalks. And a chalk, of course, like a chalk that you put up against the wheels of of a trailer or something like that, or a plane to keep it from rolling. There's kind of a similar concept here. So tell me, when would I use a knot chalk and what does that look like, Vin?
1: A knot chalk is when you take webbing and you form a knot in it. I think a lot of times like we'll use like a simple overhand and then this knot goes into a channel in the rock that becomes smaller. It's kind of like placing a nut while you're like trad climbing, right? Like then it just can't fit through the crack that it needs to come out. And then you're going to build your master point where it comes out.
0: And we have seen knot chocks as the main anchor, sometimes too It'll be a backup to another anchor that's a little bit suspicious as well. The other type is the rock chalk. And so you're doing similar to what you said, but you generally, there's a bigger crack. And so you don't want to have like this pile of knots because if you pulled on it and it kind of gets stretched a little bit like an octopus trying to go through a small tube, you don't want the knots to to compress and pull out. So if it's big enough space, you're going to want to make sure that you get a, a good rock, you're wrapping it as you would if you were creating a cairn and then ultimately that gets wedged into the crack. So conceptually, you know, you want to make sure that the direction of the pull is in the direction where it won't come loose the issue with the chocks whether it's with a rock or with a knot is that sometimes they're only stable when you pull them in the direction of the repel which is the most important thing But the danger is if I'm going on rappel and doing a normal, like I'm standing at the edge, I'm tall enough that three feet higher and I'm pulling at a different angle than when I go over the edge. So you really have to pay attention with those chalks to make sure that you're not pulling it in a weird position and then now going down on rappel and and something has come loose. And then similarly, when you walk up on one that's there, inspecting it, Is sometimes difficult because the ideal would be you could pull it out, take a look, make sure it's good, and shove it back in. But the reality is, it probably was successful where it was. So the less you mess with it, the better off and the happier it probably is. And so I've always had a little bit of concern about. Messing, I always kind of poke at it, look at it, make sure that the webbing's not getting cut with that because you've got rock up against rock when you're doing a rock chalk, but you also don't want to overdo it and then end up pulling it off in a way that's not secure anymore. So you have to be really careful with those and inspect them to the extent that you can. So the next type I would say we see a lot of, or a fair amount, are bushes. So you're not going to get a lot of bomber trees in the desert when you can. Go ahead and use those. But sometimes the only thing that's nearby is a nice bush. So tell me what I should be looking for there and how I should manage it.
1: Bushes are not necessarily my favorite, but sometimes that's all there is, right? So the bigger ones are fine if you're keeping the webbing low. The thing to check for is that it's still alive.
0: And you're going to want to make sure that the roots are actually going down into the rock and not just that the bush is alive because it's got this... Three inch layer of dirt that it's running its roots along. And so do try to inspect it and pull on it as much as you can before going off of it. And then we have a couple of other specialty anchor types, kind of similar in concept. We rarely use these, but it's a sand anchor and a water anchor. One of the brands of the water anchor is my favorite, my favorite moniker ever, the Wanker. And so what you do with both of those is you either load a tarp with sand or you fill this drainable bag with water. And so that becomes kind of like a meat anchor, but instead of a person, you just got a lot of weight from uh, sand or water. Ideally, you would put that in a little bit of a depression in the rock or behind this lip so that the rope friction would help hold you on rappel. But it comes a a temporary anchor for your rappel because when you're done, what you're gonna do is pull the pull cord. And if it's the sand anchor, then it just kind of pulls the middle up and it pushes all the sand off of it and you get your tarp back. Or if it's the wanker, you get to open a little flap and all the water runs out, and then now you've got a a nice empty bag that you're going to pull back with you as part of the pull cord. So those are, again, very specialized, usually in the beta. You're going to watch for those. We rarely carry such a thing unless we know there's a challenge in a canyon where there's just no material outside of either water in a pothole or sand, and you've got nothing else there and no good way to farm rocks for a Karen. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you tired of taking time to appreciate red rock mountains, stunning vistas, and carved slot canyons? Do you prefer bragging about doing a canyon more than the experience of the canyon itself? Then the Timex Speed Canyon Timer is for you. Using the latest in atomic digital timekeeping, the Speed Canyon timer is magnetically mounted on your car for a one button recording of your Canyon speed run. Want to do heaps in 7 hours and 43.28 seconds? Just hit the timer's patented start button and run, don't walk, through the prettiest Canyon in Zion. But there's no time for beauty or safety because nothing is more important than car-to-car bragging rights on canyoneering Facebook groups. The Timex Speed Canyon Timer, because nature is overrated.
1: What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those. No one cares,
0: Vin. So once we have a decent anchor and there's many that we've talked about, we're going to set the rope. And there's another difference here in the desert versus in the water. Ben, tell us.
1: This was one of the ones I noticed first, which is as canyoneers, we all get pretty used to figuring out how to deploy a certain amount of rope. But when we were in the Pacific Northwest, we were definitely trying to short it a little bit. The expectation was you would short a little bit and then communicate with the team to lower you to the exact right length. And I think part of that reason is you don't want an extra amount of ropes twirling around because the entrapment risk is so high. It's not necessarily a risk in the desert. The increase in efficiency for setting the rope like that you think it is and then adding a little bit extra, all you're adding is an extra five or 10 feet of rope that's sitting on the ground.
0: So in the desert, we want to ideally see the rope on the bottom. My warning on this always is don't just look for the bag on the ground because if the bag came off of the rope, your rope. They still be dangling, but having enough rope on the ground is the number one. If you can't see over the edge all the way to the ground, now you're going to err on the side of having plenty of rope, even to the point of instead of you know flaking out 50 feet or something, just hold back a handful of feet and throw the entire bag over the edge. And after the first person gets down, you can always adjust. I would be very unhappy if on rappel, I had to be lowered several times because people kept shorting the rope in the desert. We would fix that very quickly. So that wouldn't have to be the case. You do want a rig releasable in case there's a real problem to let them down, but you don't want to have it just because you're not competent enough to get enough rope out and get them to the ground the normal way. Let's talk a little now about the repelling technique. Cause we're talking about going off of a lot of questionable anchors, Vin, the Karen anchors, bushes, chalks, how do we want to manage that and keep people safe when we're not a hundred percent sure there's enough of a pile of rocks there to keep us on rappel?
1: The techniques that we discussed, like especially the ones that are a little bit less Bomber, right? Like the bushes and the water and the sand. All of these cause me some concern. However, the way that we mitigate that is we just back it up with people. In general, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to send the heaviest person first because you have more team members to back them up. Right. And then you kind of sequence through and you send your lightest, climbiest person last after it's been tested multiple times. You know, one other thing I might add is when you're going off of some of these questionable anchors, similar to climbing, three questionable anchors put together is going to start feeling pretty good. Right? If you can find more than one and then, then mass point them together, pretty good option.
0: Another technique then is whether it's backed up or not, you'll often still want to do a soft start. The technique is if you're right handed and you've got the belay side on your right. Then what, you'll, what it'll look like is you would sit down near the edge on your left hip, device will be loaded toward your left, your brake hand will be on your right, and you just kind of scooch over the edge on your left hip, but you stay off of your feet, because what you're trying to do is get the rope onto the rock and over the edge, because that rope on rock friction will help take some of the weight, the force off of the anchor, which again, with a questionable anchor is ideal. Once you get down far enough, then you can turn and get on your feet and do a normal rappel. The thing that I often see rookies do incorrectly is they do a soft start, go down a foot, turn around and stand up. And now that rope is lifted off of the lip again. And so all they've done is fully weighted the anchor and they really didn't do any good. So you do want to make sure that you go down far enough and use that as part of your technique. Sometimes in, the, in these canyons, there's like a big boulder right in the dry fall. And so you have this terrible start because that boulder, you're going to go off of it. And then there's nothing underneath. So you're going to swing. There's no place for your feet. Tell me, Vin, how we manage that.
1: In those situations, I think you and I have both gone to the technique of doing a full lock off with your device, setting the length to where you want to be when you untie, and then using all four limbs to climb down. Because a lot of times I'll grab with both hands and just slowly lower until I weight the rope and then untie and continue the rappel.
0: Yeah, that helps. But you do also want to be careful not to get your left hand for most people under that rappel rope or under the webbing. If you're grabbing the webbing to lower yourself in position, I have seen fingers pinched doing it that way. And then also you have to be careful of if you're tying off your device that when you weight it, that the device isn't jammed up against the rock. Because now when you're trying to untie it, it's really difficult because your weight is pinning it and it's much more difficult to unwrap it. So a lot of times we'll give ourselves an extra couple of inches to make sure after we get into position and sw- sometimes swing, sometimes use our hands and feet to lo- lower ourselves into a position that we're low enough so that our device is below where the rock still is. So what's another thing that's a bit different for us, Vin, in the desert, one of our best practices that we didn't see as much in the Pacific Northwest?
1: Definitely the fireman belays. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? Like you're doing aquatic canyons. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be fireman belaying somebody while you're swimming so i get why it doesn't happen but it is best practice in the desert we definitely have stories of like somebody fell and decked while people were standing around not firemen belaying and on that same token the first person going down using a vt prusik is something that we were told and like we went to a class about like the differences in aquatic canyoneering and the aspect of not using a friction hitch as a backup or a third hand because of the risk of getting stuck in water that Absolutely is the opposite in the desert. The first person in general is always going to have some kind of third hand.
0: And we don't generally recommend specific products, but because there's a lot of personal choice for canyoneers, some shoes are better than others. The only VT Presic that we have found is Blue Waters to be good. It's nice and soft, but it will grab. And really making sure that it's a seven millimeter because most of your Canyon static ropes are going to be eight to nine millimeter. And you want your VT to be one to two millimeters smaller so that it grabs the rope appropriately when you need it. So sometimes we do see and they do sell eight millimeter VT pressics. I would not recommend that. So focus on seven millimeter blue water VT pressic. So in these dry falls, Vin, there's rocks everywhere and we have to do a lot of rope management. So one thing that we will see is there's cracks in the rock and as our ropes go over either the pull side or the rappel side, they can jam in those cracks or the V's in between the rocks. The easiest thing is just making sure that the last person, again, one of the more competent in your group is watching where the pull side and where the repel strands naturally end up. So just look to see where everybody else goes and where they ending up. And then making sure that you are careful when you're going down last to keep your ropes out of the cracks or to make sure that your pull side's not laying on top of your rappel side. Sometimes we have successfully put a rock into any V that there's a natural pinch point, but you have to make sure if you're doing that, that as you're pulling that, that rock won't come loose and you're going to pull a rock down on top of yourself. What are other things that we do in order to help with that pull?
1: A lot of times you're going to start to consider using like a fiddlestick, a smooth operator or some other like toggle system. Usually we pair it with a three millimeter dynamic cord just because it's so much lighter. It's easier to always have on you. And this is going to have a number of benefits. It can significantly change the way that the pull works because when you release, you're not having to pull rope through the repeat itself. Think about where the pull is going to go and how the repeller is going to act as they traverse down to make sure that they don't interact with the pull cord at all. And so in general, what we do is we'll send the fiddle cord down from the second or last person so that... While they're deploying it, they can also kind of set it and fix any problems that, you know, occur while they're going down. And then as we do that, we start communicating from the top all the way to the bottom, which, you know, again, like can't really do with whistles. But you start asking, hey, which way which way do you want the fiddle cord to be since you're at the bottom looking up? And then we'll make adjustments according to that.
0: And some of the things that we're looking for are bushes or trees that the people up top can't see. So I may fiddle in a direction so that the pole is down canyon right. And then when the first person gets down, they just say, hey, there's this huge tree or a pile of bushes that are off on the right side. So let's flip it over onto the left. So that's part of the process. We like it because it helps make the rope pull easier. It also reduces or eliminates rope grooves because you're not pulling, say, 200 feet of of rope through the repeat, and and now you've got rope both going up and down as you're pulling. With the Dyneema cord, we understand when it falls into a pile, it likes to knot itself like no other rope you will ever see. I understand you wouldn't use it in the water because it's just going to twist on top of itself and you're going to spend so much time trying to undo it. But that Amsteel Dyneema cord, we carry the three millimeter. It's so light that it actually helps replace generally one of our ropes. So the common wisdom is to have three times the length of your longest repel in rope. So if my longest repel is 200 feet, I ideally would have three 200-foot ropes because in some of my repels, my one rope is going to be the pull cord for the other long rope. And if I get those stuck, then I would have yet another rope to be able to get out of that canyon still. We replace that with the fiddle and the Amsteel because then we just fiddle all the longer rappels. don't commit the two, lo- two other ropes to any one rappel, And then, you know, if there's a trouble with one, we would still have the other You could also use six millimeter pull cord as well, either to directly pull the rope or to pull the fiddle. One of the last things that were surprising to us is the, a lot of the folks in the Pacific Northwest, when they are restuffing the rope bag, they do it differently than we do Vin. So they do what they would call spaghetti and just do small butterfly coils in their hand, flip it over and put it in the bag and then do it again until their hand is full again. I think the only wisdom that I saw there is if it's a, you know, there's a lot of short repels that we did. And so doing what we do in the desert might be a little more overhead, if you will, But tell our listeners what we generally do in the desert.
1: The way that we would do it, we would have a carabiner clipped to our helmet through the chin strap and then feed it through that. The bag is sitting below you, whether it's clipped to your harness or I like to just put it on the ground and sit. And now you're using both hands to feed it into the bag. And it is running through the carabiner in your neck that takes out a lot of the kinks. A lot of times you'll have somebody helping you, either holding the bag or kind of like prepping the rope, and they can prep the rope in a number of ways. One is that they can kind of like start piling it or flaking it so that the knots are already taken out, but if it was wet, you can also start pre-squeezing the water. Now, which one is better? I'm not necessarily sure, right? Spaghetti makes a lot of sense too, especially on those shorter repels, but I would bet money that on 200 feet, you are not beating the way that we do it and the other thing I would add is, yes, when
0: you're squeezing out the water, that helps just keep it out of the stuffer's face. And same for sand. If the rope's a little wet and then you're dragging it through sand, you're going to have a ton of that sand on the rope. So having somebody run their hand over it and get as much sand off as possible before it gets to the stuffer is a nice thing for everybody involved. And it's a little kinder to your rope. So for all of you going to visit the desert on the rendezvous this next week, welcome to the desert. Have a good time, be safe, and we will talk to you again next time.